2: Welcome to Season 4, Episode 38 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener Caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Psychological reports say they are absolutely sane individuals. It's frightening that they are such ordinary people. There is nothing special about them. Detective Inspector Peter Wall, outside Manchester Crown Court, 1993. Early one dark morning during the run up to Christmas in 1992, Barry Sutcliffe, a refuse worker, and his colleagues were passing some open countryside near the Romley Golf Course on the outskirts of Stockport, Greater Manchester. As they navigated the narrow country lanes just after 6am, they spotted something in the distance. A naked teenager was staggering on the roadside waving her arms, shouting, Stop! Her head appeared to have been shaved. And the skin on her hands looked as though it was painted black. The driver and his companions immediately pulled over and tried to assist the young woman. She was in shock, but said her name was Suzanne. She said, Over there in the field, they burned me. They burned me. They put petrol on me. Suzanne told Barry that after being abducted, Her kidnappers held her hostage at a property for a week, where she was injected with drugs and tortured. After being dumped down a wooded bank close by and set on fire, Suzanne had found the strength to struggle on foot around a quarter of a mile before being seen. Barry Sutcliffe took Suzanne to a nearby home on Compstall Road, where the emergency services were notified and she was rushed to the hospital. The homeowner, a company director, Michael Coop, described the horrific nature of Suzanne's injuries, stating, Both her hands appeared like ash, her legs were just like raw meat, and her feet appeared badly charred. Michael Coop would later go on to detail how Suzanne remained incredibly courteous while he called for an ambulance as his wife wrapped a dressing gown around Suzanne And gave her water. I was struck as I was standing there, how polite the victim was. She was constantly thanking my wife. Michael Coop's wife, Margaret, also documented the events of that morning, telling police in a statement I instinctively went to put my arms around her, but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was shaved and there were recent, not new cuts to her head. Her face was almost featureless. Suzanne was critically injured, not only burned, but her body showed signs of severe trauma, bruising and deep lacerations. As she was lowered onto the stretcher by paramedics, she screamed in pain, but continued to thank the Coop family for their help. Clinicians at the burns unit in Manchester's Withington Hospital identified that Suzanne had suffered severe burns to three-quarters of her body. She soon lost consciousness, so was put on life support. Police officers held a vigil at her bedside, waiting anxiously for her to wake up. On Tuesday, December 15th, 1992... The day after she was found, the victim was formally identified as Suzanne Kappa. She was 16 years of age. She had been living with her stepfather on Bewley Walk in Moston, Manchester. As her injuries were so severe, Suzanne's mother and stepfather were at first unable to identify her. Officers managed to cross-reference a partial thumbprint against a previous record held on Suzanne when she was cautioned as a child. Before she passed out, Suzanne had divulged the address where she was held and the identities of the people that had tortured her. But that morning when Detective Inspector Peter Wall of the Greater Manchester Police Force arrived into work and was told of the incident, he had his doubts about the horrific nature of the story. When interviewed, he would later say, it sounded like a typical case of a young girl who had had problems with her boyfriend and doused herself with petrol. It does happen. Suzanne, fortunately, as far as the police investigation
1: was concerned, was able to tell those people that um, found Suzanne um, enough to point us in the right direction. And there's no doubt that had Suzanne not have been in that position, um it would have made our inquiries a lot more difficult.
2: Police arrived to carry out a raid on a Victorian terrace property four miles from the centre of Manchester, and not even a mile from the home where Suzanne had been staying with her 53-year-old stepfather. They found the residence where Suzanne was held, a two-up, two-down, in disarray. Filth covered the walls, and car seats were being used as makeshift chairs in the living room. Suzanne's hair was found in a wheelie bin that belonged to another property, and ominously, in the house, a pair of stained pliers were discovered next to the Christmas tree. Neighbours of the rented residence on Langworthy Road reported that a car usually parked outside had been towed away. Six people were taken into custody, and while their identities were not revealed to the public, it was confirmed that two females and four males were arrested. There appeared to be no sexual motive behind the attack, however police were still desperately trying to understand why Suzanne was abducted and tortured for a prolonged period of time. in a private hearing a magistrate in Ashton-under-Lyne granted officers for the Greater Manchester Police permission to interview the suspects for an extra 24 hours as forensic technicians examined the property where Suzanne had been held at the time police could only interview an individual for 36 hours before an extension permitted by a magistrate was required Addressing the press in response to the news that Suzanne was fighting for her life, Detective Chief Superintendent Ron Astle stated, You would have to go back to the days of Brady and Hindley for an incident that compares with the sheer horror of it. It's a horrific incident. There are distinct reasons behind this, and distinct personalities involved. The press were quick to interview Suzanne's neighbours, who confirmed that she had only just left school. Moston Brook High earlier that year. Suzanne, who was seeking work prior to her attack, was described by people that knew her as a pleasant youngster. It was fairly quiet. One neighbour, Lillian Pearson, told reporters. A couple of weeks ago, she described how she had been tied up for four days, but she was inclined to exaggerate and no one believed her neighbours at her home in Moston say
1: they're shocked by the incident. Pat Holber says the family kept themselves to themselves but Suzanne always had friends round at the house.
0: We didn't see a lot of them, you know, mainly you know, as to say, when the girls were here and that, we've had little running with them now and again, you know Over what, noise? Or? Noise and, you know, having little gangs round and that, you know but, um, as I say she
1: didn't deserve that
2: Rachel Yeomans, another resident who lived nearby, explained how Suzanne had been struggling to get over the separation of her mother and stepfather. She was dreading Christmas because she had nowhere to go, the neighbour said. The head teacher of Moston Brook High, where Suzanne attended school, explained that he was shocked by the news. John Watkins said, We saw very little of her from the fourth year onwards because her attendance was erratic we feel great sympathy for her and we just hope she makes a full recovery After the suspects were questioned at separate police stations across Manchester they were provisionally charged with kidnap and attempted murder Suzanne Kappa lay in a hospital bed, being kept alive by a life support machine and a cocktail of drugs that had been administered to keep her blood circulating. The six suspects, all from Moston in Manchester, who had been transported to the court under high security, were identified as husband and wife, Glynn and Jean Powell, 28 and 25 years old, respectively, Jeffrey Lee, 26. Bernadette McNeely, 23, and a 17-year-old male who could not be identified due to his age. In the five-minute hearing, the suspects were told by a Manchester magistrate that they would be held in custody until a further hearing due a week later. A 16-year-old, who also could not be named, was remanded in custody in a separate hearing. His solicitor applied for his client to be remanded into the care of the local authority. No applications for bail were made. Doctors were fighting around the clock to save Suzanne's life as her condition had been deteriorating since she was admitted. She was monitored by a doctor who was stationed by her bedside, supported by a team of nurses.
1: Sixteen-year-old Suzanne is still in a critical condition in Manchester's Withington Hospital. She was found by refuse collector Barry Sutcliffe. She said that she'd been held for over a week in a bedroom somewhere where the people that had had her had been injecting her with drugs, which she showed me her arm, which had the actual needle marks on it. Her arms arms were no skin, all the front of her legs, all the top of her head, and there was skin all hanging off her fingers.
2: Dr Andrew Mortimer, a consultant and aesthetist at Withington Hospital, told reporters, Suzanne is extremely poorly. No one can predict the outcome, but she is getting the best care there is. The director of the intensive care unit, Dr Dennis Edwards, added, We are unable to make any forecasts in a case where someone has suffered burns as extensive as these. Officers and civilian staff working the case were so overcome by Suzanne's injuries, they sent flowers to her bedside. While health professionals did all they could, only a week before Christmas, Suzanne Jane Kappa passed away around 1am on Friday, December 18th. Her parents, Mother Elizabeth and Stepfather John never left her bedside, hoping she might recover. They were there when she died. Withington Hospital released a statement regarding Suzanne's passing. Her death was due to complications arising from her injuries and was in spite of continued life support measures and full intensive care. Only a day before Christmas, when all six suspects arrived at a further hearing, they were told they would be facing a charge of murder with the attempted murder charge withdrawn by the prosecutor, Martin Hill. It was alleged the accused kidnapped Suzanne between December 7th and December 14th, 1992, with her murder taking place on December 18th, the day she died from her injuries. Her mother Elizabeth watched the court proceedings from the public gallery and was seen being led away from the court in tears. Again, none of the suspects applied for bail, with committal proceedings scheduled to take place in February. The 16 year old suspect was remanded in custody, though was released a week later into the care of Manchester City Council Social Services, being granted a secure accommodation order. Committal proceedings, or committal hearings as they are also known, are no longer required but at the time the hearings would establish if there were sufficient evidence to go to trial. During the second week of January 1993, an inquest into the death of Suzanne Kappa was held at a coroner's court in Manchester. Her mother Elizabeth said that the last time she had seen her daughter was less than a few weeks before Suzanne was killed. While Suzanne had been moving between friends' homes, she was staying with her stepfather at the time. Dr William Lawler, a home office pathologist, described not only the severe burns which covered most of Suzanne's body, but there were scratches and cuts that had been made to her skin possibly through the use of a stiff bristled brush or scouring pad. However, another reason for the cuts may have been the thorns from the bramble bushes close to where she was found. Abrasions also marked her face consistent with cigarette burns, and some of her teeth were forcibly removed. While it was apparent her head was shaved, her eyebrows and pubic hair were also removed, either being cut off or burned off. When Suzanne was admitted to hospital, staff believed she had quote, minimal chances of survival. Suzanne had died due to multiple organ failure. Detective Inspector Peter Wall told the inquest that six individuals had been arrested and charged with both Suzanne Kappa's abduction and murder. The coroner Leonard Gorodkin told those present at the inquest It is clear that this young girl must have suffered tremendously, but she did fortunately survive long enough to give information which led to the people mentioned being charged. Speaking to Suzanne's parents, he said, I offer you not just on my behalf, but on behalf of the whole nation, my very deepest sympathy and condolences at this tragic happening to your young daughter. The inquest was adjourned pending the outcome of the trial. On Monday, January 18th, 1993, a funeral was held for Suzanne Capper at Blackley Cemetery in Manchester. The procession was followed by a group of pipers as Suzanne was laid to rest surrounded by soft toys. A hundred mourners attended the service, including several police officers who were working on the case. Friends and family gathered around the graveside as high winds carried the sound of a single piper. A note left in a floral tribute read, You will never be out of our minds. We will never stop loving and missing you. The following month, committal proceedings began and it was confirmed that the six individuals aged between 28 and 16 who were arrested and charged with Suzanne's abduction and murder were set to go to trial in November. Glyn and Jean Powell, Jeffrey Lee and Bernadette McNeely were all in their 20s. One of the two males who had remained nameless, as he had been 17 at the time of Suzanne's death, was identified as Clifford Hayes also known as Clifford Pook. He was Gene Powell's brother. Pook had recently turned 18. Due to his age, the other teenage suspect, who was 16 at the time, could still not be named. Suzanne Capper had a somewhat unstable home life. Her stepfather, John Capper, had split from Suzanne's mother Elizabeth so due to the tensions at home Suzanne was occasionally staying with a number of friends throughout the Moston area. Suzanne moved back in with her stepfather around a month and a half before she died. She was polite and thoughtful, John Kappa said in an interview. I have asthma and she made sure she went out the front door to have a cigarette. She was a very polite child. I would say she was naive. Suzanne loved to listen to pop music on the radio, especially Michael Jackson. She had planned to move back in with her mother just before Christmas. Her mother spoke with David Ward writing for The Guardian. Remembering her daughter, Elizabeth said, She was fun-loving but not boisterous. She was like any 16-year-old girl who wanted to be out with her friends. Suzanne never brought any problems home. She enjoyed doing things for other people and always giving love and affection. She was never interested in getting anything back. Suzanne's school attendance was not perfect as she often spent that time working as a cleaner. She became friendly with a teenager Clifford Pook and slowly was introduced to his family and friends. She already knew his sister Jean Powell and Jean's husband, Glynn. The Powells had split up in 1991, though still remained in contact, regularly seeing each other at the home where Jean still lived on Langworthy Road in Moston. The residence was also home to several of the Powells' children. Suzanne was a frequent visitor, as she was often babysitting and had done so since she was ten. It was also the place where Jean and Glyn Powell and their friends, Bernadette McNeely, Jeffrey Lee and others, hung out and took drugs. They would later be described by the press as unemployed drifters, petty criminals, car thieves and drug abusers. Bernadette McNeely had lived on the same street, but shortly before Suzanne's death along with her children... McNeely also moved in with Jean Powell. The two had to share a bed in the dining room as the property was so cramped. To those that knew her, Suzanne was someone who was easily influenced, willing to please and looking for comfort and reassurance in the wrong places. Due to her circumstances of drifting from home to home, it just so happened that no one thought to raise the alarm. And this played a significant role in no one considering her whereabouts, as she was often with friends. A trial into the abduction and murder of Suzanne Kappa began on Monday, November 15th, 1993. Glynn Powell, Jean Powell, Jeffrey Lee, Bernadette McNeely, Clifford Pook and a teenager, Anthony Dudson, pleaded not guilty to a charge of murder. Anthony Dudson, who was 16 at the time, had not been named up until this point, however the judge ruled that his identity could be revealed. Dudson, Jeffrey Lee and Glyn Powell denied a charge of false imprisonment, however Bernadette McNeely, Jean Powell and Clifford Pook accepted their guilt for this charge. Puck also admitted to a charge of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, a charge the other five defendants denied. The biggest question on everyone's lips, why was a young girl taken to a remote woodland and burned alive? It would seem the horrific torture and injuries that Suzanne sustained were inspired by nothing more than what the prosecutor described as a handful of trivial matters the first being a duffel coat that Suzanne had borrowed from Bernadette McNeely but had failed to return. The second, McNeely and Anthony Dudson contracted pubic lice, which they blamed on Suzanne as she occasionally slept in McNeely's bed. And the third, an incident in November 1992. Along with Suzanne and her former boyfriend at the time, Jean Powell visited the home of a man who was described as a wealthy sheik. This was not the case, and if Powell's account can be believed, she felt unhappy that Suzanne tried to encourage her to have sex with him. When interviewed by police, the man in question, Mohammed Yosef, denied this to be the case. Peter Openshaw QC explained to the jury of Manchester's Crown Court that nothing could provide a rationale and adequate motive for what befell this girl, adding, The cumulative effect of these insubstantial matters was to bring Miss Capper into contempt on this loose circle of friends, and this contempt developed into hostility. On December 7th 1992... Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely travelled to the home of Suzanne's stepfather in Bewley Walk, asking to see Suzanne, but she was not home. When she returned later that Monday night, an argument erupted between her and the two women, but it seemed to abate when they calmly convinced Suzanne to come back with them to Powell's home on Langworthy Road. It was the prosecution's belief that when Suzanne arrived... In the presence of Anthony Dudson and Glynn Powell, she was attacked, stripped naked and beaten. First her eyebrows and scalp were shaved, before Suzanne was made to cut her pubic hair, which she was forced to clean up and put in a black bin bag that was later found by police. This was considered some form of retaliation by lovers Anthony Dudson and Bernadette McNeely, who believed they had contracted lice from Suzanne. The physical attacks then began, with Suzanne being struck with a belt, a large wooden spoon and other kitchen utensils. That first night she was forced into a cupboard, which was then locked. She was moved to another address on the same street where Bernadette McNeely had previously lived, though still retained a key. By then, Geoffrey Lee and Clifford Pook were involved. Suzanne was the subject of yet more humiliation and torture. Using rope and electrical flex, her attackers tied her to a bed that had been turned upside down. A blindfold was forced over her eyes, a belt tied around her neck, and a sock was shoved into her mouth. In the padlocked room, she was unable to move for several days and left in her own excrement. She was offered food and drink, but did not consume it. Suzanne was then untied and forced to bathe in concentrated disinfectant, brushed harshly with a broom, then cigarettes were put out on her skin. She was injected with amphetamines, while forced to listen to a brief clip from the film Child's Play with a musical underscore, which was played perpetually on a loop through a pair of headphones that she was unable to remove. The voice repeated, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? A catchphrase from the film. The words shouted by Bernadette McNeely were enough to cause Suzanne to scream. Prosecutor Peter Openshaw QC described this as an insidious form of torture. A tape cassette of the music was found, along with a collection of horror books, some about the occult and a copy of Misery written by author Stephen King. With Suzanne missing, her stepfather was getting worried, which prompted her sister to visit the home on Langworthy Road, but was told by the defendants that Suzanne was not there. When a decision was made to permanently silence her, Suzanne was untied and dressed in underwear, leggings and a raincoat. A balaclava was pulled over her head. Suzanne could not walk, so was picked up and thrown into the boot of a stolen Fiat Panda car that had been fitted with false number plates. Geoffrey Lee and Clifford Pook remained at the property. In the early morning of December 14th 1992, Suzanne was driven to a secluded area by Glyn Powell, Jean Powell, Bernadette McNeely and Anthony Dudson. But not before they stopped for some Lucasade on the way. When they arrived at Werneth Low Woods around 5am, Suzanne was thrown down a bank through the thorns, doused in petrol and set alight. When officers later visited the scene where Suzanne was taken by her tormentors, the heavily scorched earth was clearly visible. She somehow survived and managed to limp for a quarter of a mile before she was seen. According to the prosecutor, when the six regrouped, they allegedly sang the song Burn Baby Burn and other, quote, grotesquely inappropriate songs, unaware that Suzanne was in fact alive and would later reveal their names. During their interviews with police, each of the defendants blamed the others. Still, from the stories provided to detectives, police managed to piece together a timeline of the suspect's movements. Describing the alleged offences, the jury were told by Peter Openshaw QC, It is the case of the prosecution that these six defendants each played their separate and different roles and between them imprisoned her, brutally assaulted and tortured her, and then four of them, with the active assistance, encouragement and cooperation of the other two, had taken her by car to Werneth Lowe where she was doused in petrol and set alight. A witness who worked at a petrol station in Newton Heath and later testified confirmed that he saw Glyn Powell and Anthony Dudson visiting his place of work with Powell filling up a white canister full of petrol. David Hill was a close friend to one of the defendants, Jeffrey Lee. Lee had fathered a child with Hill's sister. Hill took the stand and described how he visited Bernadette McNeely's former home several times during the week that Suzanne was being held captive. Hill was asked to attend for a, quote, sitting. He had no idea why he had been asked to come to the address, but could hear one of the defendants, Anthony Dudson, shouting, Shut up, you slag. And there was some mention of dentistry work. Hill wasn't sure what that meant, assuming the group were having a joke, unaware they had abducted someone. While at the address alone, David Hill heard someone crying for help. Suzanne was shouting, Who is it? Who's there? Upon entering a room that had been padlocked shut, David Hill found Suzanne restrained hand and foot to an upturned bed with a blindfold wrapped around her head. David Hill would go on to admit that when Suzanne begged to be freed, he did nothing to help her. Hill was questioned by Helen Grindrod QC, counsel for Jeffrey Lee. You could have told somebody, couldn't you, and never have gone back to that house again? telling the QC that he was not only petrified of Jeffrey Lee, his sister's former partner, but of the repercussions if he did so. he replied, I thought they would batter me, if I'd have set out. They'd all have got me, wouldn't they? I didn't know what to do. I was too shocked to do anything. Home office pathologist Dr. William Lawler, who had carried out the post-mortem, took the stand. He recounted Suzanne's extensive injuries. These included not only the burns, but evidence that dental nerves were exposed. A dental pathologist who had been tasked with analysing two teeth found at the home of one of the defendants expanded further on these injuries, testifying that it was evident the teeth had markings consistent with the use of pliers. The torture Suzanne suffered at the hands of the defendants was accompanied by one of them screaming, chucky has been playing, chucky has been playing. If statements made to detectives by Gene Powell were true, when Bernadette McNeely, a mother to three children, tortured Suzanne, she took on the persona of Chucky, a character from the horror film Child's Play. When Bernie mentioned Chucky, something happened, Gene Powell said. I'd heard the word Chucky on a rave tape, and I've also seen the film about a doll that comes to life and kills people, she later testified. The jury were read transcribed tape recordings of Powell's interview, and in one she stated, Bernie was whizzed up. She said it was Chucky doing it. She had injected Suzanne with speed. It was assumed the term whizzed up meant that McNeely was on the same amphetamines that she had given to Suzanne against her will. Jean Powell admitted to police that she had purchased the drugs to distribute, but ended up taking a great deal of them. I was numb and scared, and I didn't say anything to anyone most of the time. Everything was funny that week, Powell explained. The transcript then mentioned that Suzanne was bathed, and the further horrors she endured. There were opportunities for Suzanne to escape, but she was too scared, according to Powell. Describing what happened next, along with Glynn Powell, Anthony Dudson and Bernadette McNeely, they threw Suzanne in the boot of a car and drove her to Wernith Low Woods. When Jean Powell took the stand, the prosecutor told her that surely she knew what was going to happen. Powell exclaimed, no, I thought they were going to let her go. Powell recounted how McNeely was laughing and joking throughout the drive. Powell claimed that she was sitting in the car but could not see what was going on after Suzanne was taken out of the boot. Suzanne was still wobbly and fell over. Bernie said get up. Bernie threw her down the hill and poured petrol on her. The next minute there was a great big flash of light and that was when she was on fire. I heard her scream. Later in the trial, Powell's relationship with her now ex-husband Glynn was raised as the two had corresponded while they were on remand awaiting trial. Jean Powell stated that she was terrified of her husband but had not said anything untrue to police about Glynn Powell's involvement. The prosecutor was quick to point to letters the couple had sent to each other while on remand, in which Jean Powell wrote, All my love, your loving wife and best friend. She replied to the prosecutor, I didn't love him, but I have feelings for him. You can love someone but still be frightened of them. Powell simply said that things went too far, blaming Bernadette McNeely. She spoke as if it was McNeely who dictated what happened to Suzanne. Powell said that she was the one who put Suzanne in the cupboard on the first night of her ordeal, for her, quote, own safety. I love Suzanne as a sister, Powell said. I don't like violence. I don't even smack my own children.
1: Post your
2: free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Anthony Dudson, who was 16 at the time of the incident, agreed that he witnessed the torture of Suzanne Capper over a week-long period. He said that he did not inflict any severe injuries. He blamed his co-defendants and denied he was, quote, "...right in the heart of the violence." Dudson admitted striking Suzanne once, though he only did this as he felt the rest of the group would turn on him if he didn't. Dudson, known by the nickname Grease, described himself as a trainee car thief and detailed the relationship he had not only with his co-defendants, but Suzanne. He told the jury that he had a sexual relationship with Gene Powell, 12 years his senior. The two had met earlier that year and she called him Randy Rabbit. Jeannie was the first person I ever slept with, he said. According to Anthony Dudson's testimony, he also slept with mother of three Bernadette McNeely on several occasions. Their relationship continued sporadically until their arrest for murder. During his time on the stand, Dudson also admitted that he had slept with Suzanne for a number of weeks in October 1992, only a few months before her death. This adds credence to the prosecution's theory that the defendant's actions were taken in part due to their belief they had contracted a sexually transmitted infection from Suzanne. Dudson gave several contradicting accounts of what happened throughout his police interrogation although he was recorded as saying it was Glyn Powell who shaved Suzanne's scalp, forced a bin bag over her head, then struck her continually. Recalling the attack by Powell, Dudson said, he then grabbed hold of a wooden spoon and hit her right arm. Her right arm swelled up immediately. I thought it was broke. As Suzanne fell to the floor and curled up in a ball, the attack continued with Bernadette McNeely and Jean Powell kicking her. Dudson then went on to describe the forced removal of Suzanne's teeth. He said, I was stood at the doorway, with Jeanie and Bernie. Cliff took off her gag. He told her to open her mouth. He said, Right, I'm going to rip your teeth out. He started hitting her teeth with pliers. He got the pliers on and started pulling it out but it just snapped and chipped. Then he hit them a few more times. He put the pliers on again and really, really pulled. He pulled Suzanne's head forward until there was a snap and he had a tooth in the pliers. He did the same again and he was laughing. Anthony Dudson also confessed that he witnessed Suzanne being coated in petrol before the fluid was set alight. Explaining that he thought she would instead be, quote, "'Dumped and strangled in the woods,' Dudson watched on as Glyn Powell made several unsuccessful attempts to light the petrol that had been thrown over their victim. From the grassy bank of Werneth Low Woods, Powell had at first asked Dudson for some paper. Dudson passed Powell an envelope that he had in his pocket, but the paper would not light despite Powell trying on several occasions. In the end, he just went up to her with a lighter and lit her. He lit her on the back, Anthony Dudson said. She went straight up in flames and was screaming. The flames lit up the whole forest. Glyn Powell apparently laughed when the group returned to the home in Moston. When asked why he did not try and stop Glyn Powell from lighting the petrol, Dudson said, I wanted him to stop. I was scared of him. There had been an opportunity when Anthony Dudson could have raised the alarm. Along with Geoffrey Lee, they visited Paul Barlow, fiancé to Suzanne's sister, and helped him fix his car. They made no mention of Suzanne's imprisonment. Paul Barlow reportedly said, They could have told me there and then. The door would have been kicked down and I would have got Suzanne out. I did not think they were capable of such savagery. Partway through the trial, Anthony Dudson pleaded guilty to false imprisonment. Yet more statements taken during police interviews were read to the jury at Manchester Crown Court, this time from Geoffrey Lee. He at first denied that he knew of Suzanne's captivity. But much like his fellow defendants, he then blamed everyone else for what happened, painting himself as a bystander who should have stopped his friends but did not. He told detectives, I find it unbelievable that it went so far as it did. And I was stupid enough to let them go so far without doing something. Mentioning Jean Powell, he said that she gets mad ideas in the brain. She feels she could have people jump when she clicks her fingers. Highlighting Bernadette McNeely's love of tarot cards, Lee described her as a bit weird. He pointed the finger at McNeely, labelling her a witch. He told officers it was her who injected Suzanne with drugs, and even threatened to inject Suzanne with a syringe full of air. From the stand, Jeffrey Lee told the court that when he went to the property on Langworthy Road to obtain drugs, he noticed it was empty, save for Bernadette McNeely. She seemed to be happy, on a high. She threw me a key and said, Look what's upstairs in the wardrobe. I saw a person cowering. She had her arms over her face. At first I thought it was a boy because their head was shaved. But then I noticed she had a black eye and bruising on her face. Suzanne was petrified. Jeffrey Lee did not speak to her but described her as looking like a wounded animal in a trap. The prosecution were adamant that Lee was just as responsible as the other defendants. However, his counsel stressed that their client did not transport Suzanne to the woods. He was the one that untied her from the bed before she was thrown into the boot of a car. The knots were so tight that each took several minutes to loosen. Lee was asked by his counsel why he did not report what was going on to the police. Lee replied, I could have, but for most of my life I've been a criminal. I did not feel I was involved in what was going on. You do not like going to the police. When prompted if his mind had changed since he was arrested, he said, If I had told the police that day, that poor girl would be with us today. I will feel devastated for the rest of my life. Jeffrey Lee described the suffering that Suzanne Capper endured. He said, She went through every pain barrier imaginable. In spite of several other defendants insisting that it was Bernadette McNeely who coated Suzanne in petrol shortly before it was ignited, McNeely denied that the petrol she poured landed on Suzanne. She described Suzanne being curled up on her side after being thrown from the car. Although she admitted pouring the petrol, McNeely was adamant she purposefully missed Suzanne by around ten yards. She then claimed the canister was snatched from her hands. Bernadette McNeely broke down when she took the stand, insisting that Anthony Dudson was next to her when she was pouring the petrol, shouting, Throw it, you stupid bitch. You are nowhere near her. We are only scaring her. McNeely said that she was terrified and fled back to the car. She claimed she did not see who ultimately set the fire. Her statements to police were somewhat inconsistent as she mentioned that Suzanne's teeth were pulled out for quote identification purposes. McNeely denied that she wanted Suzanne dead, saying... I didn't actually think it would be carried through. I thought everyone was getting hyped up over something stupid. As the trial approached the end of its second week, following a legal argument which has never been publicly disclosed, at the end of the prosecution's evidence the judge, Mr Justice Potts, directed the jury to clear the then 18-year-old Clifford Pook of murder. Pook, who was 17 at the time that Suzanne was murdered, admitted to both conspiring to cause her grievous bodily harm and false imprisonment. He would be sentenced for his crimes at the end of the trial. as each defendant had their own counsel. Manchester Crown Court would hear from each of them. The crux of each argument centred around their clients being present, with minimal involvement. Their crime was simply not doing enough to stop the other defendants, the jury were told. There was a lot of finger-pointing, with one QC arguing there was no physical evidence to tie his client to the crimes, only their statements to police. According to the QC representing Gene Powell, detectives would not have known the circumstances of the crime through their own investigation and their evidence would not have pointed to who was ultimately responsible. In his closing remarks, Jack Price QC said, I submit on behalf of Mrs Powell that without her own interviews, in which she clearly made various admissions, there was no or next to no evidence on the murder charge. Her story involved a number of things which created a number of difficulties for her, but she had no need to have said them all. Before the judge's summary of the case, Geoffrey Lee changed one of his pleas and admitted to a charge of false imprisonment. He told the court that he had seen Suzanne locked up, though admitted he did nothing to help her. Addressing the jury, his QC, Helen Grindrod said, If Jeffrey Lee was charged with lack of moral fibre or display of moral turpitude, no doubt you would say he was guilty. But these are not criminal offences. Just over a week before Christmas 1993, the jury of eight men and four women retired. During their first day of deliberation, They could not come to a decision on each verdict. They had spent five and a half hours judging the merits of the Crown's case against six individuals, five of whom faced a charge of murder. Their fate would have to wait another day. On December 17th, 1993, Glyn Powell, then twenty-nine. His former wife Jean, 26, Bernadette McNeely, 24 and Anthony Dudson, 17 were all found guilty of murdering Suzanne Kappa. Dudson received a 10-2 majority with the other accused receiving unanimous verdicts. They appeared unfazed by the news they were facing a life sentence. Glyn Powell was found guilty of false imprisonment a charge the remaining five defendants pleaded guilty to. Glynn Powell, Gene Powell, Anthony Dudson and Bernadette McNeely were also found guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm. Jeffrey Lee, then 27, was found not guilty of murder and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, though he had pleaded guilty to a charge of false imprisonment during closing arguments. Clifford Puck, 18, was cleared of the murder charge following instruction from the judge, though admitted to a charge of false imprisonment and a charge of grievous bodily harm. For the murder of Suzanne Capper, Glyn Powell, Jean Powell, Bernadette McNeely and Anthony Dudson were sentenced to life in prison. The judge, Mr Justice Potts, told each of the accused that the evidence was clear. They had committed an appalling crime and anything worse was difficult to imagine. Glyn Powell, Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely each received a minimum of 25 years for the murder charge and 20 years for the charges or pleas of false imprisonment and grievous bodily harm their sentences would run concurrently. After being convicted on a majority verdict, Anthony Dudson was sentenced to 18 years for murder and 15 years each for his guilty plea to the charge of false imprisonment and being found guilty of causing grievous bodily harm. These sentences would also be served concurrently. The judge acknowledged the part Dudson played but told him, I am satisfied that you were corrupted by others. Jeffrey Lee, who had been found not guilty of murder and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, was sentenced to 12 years for admitting to a charge of false imprisonment. Mr Justice Potts said, Of course I must give effect to the jury's verdict in your case. You have been acquitted of murder and conspiracy to cause really serious injury. I am satisfied that you took an active part in the imprisonment of this girl and you did so knowing what was happening. Again in your favour, it has been said there is no evidence that you laid a hand on her. Clifford Puck, Gene Powell's brother who had been cleared of murder on the direction of the judge, was sentenced to 15 years for admitting to a charge of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm he also received seven years for a charge of false imprisonment, which would be served concurrently. It was Pook who finally admitted that he was the one who forcibly removed Suzanne's teeth, but the judge believed that Pook was under the influence of his older sister when he carried out the act. Suzanne's mother was distraught and had to be helped from the court. As impartial as the jury members had to be over the course of the trial, several looked visibly upset when they were asked to hand down their verdicts for each defendant. Suzanne's stepfather John was beside himself. They should not be allowed out to do the same to someone else's daughter. It sounds nasty, but they should give them ten years and then bring hanging back. I am angry and upset and I am struggling to keep going. My life is ruined. When I saw her in hospital, she wasn't even recognisable. Not even as a human being. I think the beings that's been sent up from hell, and that's where they'll go back to. I can't put any other explanation on it. Speaking about the place where his stepdaughter was taken, and why teenagers went there, John Capper added, A lot of them were drawn to it. It was a place you could stay out all night, come home in the morning and defy your parents. They had an effect on almost everyone who went there. I tried to stop her going. Suzanne's biological father Gerard Jones was present in court during the closing arguments. He said, Justice has been done and not before time. I am very happy with the verdicts. Now Suzanne will rest, and I don't think she could until all this was over. Suzanne's mother said the sentencing would not bring her daughter back. I have got a life sentence myself, she said. Commenting on the events, Detective Inspector Peter Wall spoke about how the acts of violence escalated.
1: I honestly think that the group... um Started getting pleasure sadistic pleasure out of the various acts that um th- the various acts of torture that they were uh, perpetrated on suzanne whilst the primary motive, as we said was revenge it became quite clear over the days that for some of them pleasure became the main force um and we believe that the, the members of the group wanted to out-, out outdo each other by inventing ways of inflicting more and more horrendous acts of torture. They eventually cross the threshold where they can't possibly let Suzanne go Um, and that is when we are convinced that they make a decision as a group um, to dispose of her in the manner in which they did. I can personally say, and I think it goes for all the officers that were involved in this particular inquiry that it's certainly the most horrendous murder I've ever had to deal with and uh, I don't think I'll ever forget it. And I think the name of Suzanne Kappa will stick with it, stick in the minds of certainly the police officer involved, and probably a lot of people in in Manchester. The killing of Suzanne Kappa shocked the nation. Details of how she'd been held captive for seven days and systematically tortured were so horrific as to be almost beyond belief. And her death, coming as it did only days before Christmas, cast a blight over Manchester's traditional celebrations. Now, almost a year to the day that Suzanne's young life was so cruelly snuffed out, justice has been dispensed on her captors and tormentors, people she had looked upon as friends.
2: As the trial had played out, the media were quick to link the crimes committed against Suzanne Kappa to the case of James Bolger, a two-year-old who was abducted from a shopping centre in Merseyside before he was brutally beaten to death by two ten-year-olds, John Venables and Robert Thompson. Venables and Thompson's trial finished weeks apart from the trial against those convicted of murdering Suzanne Kappa. Sentencing Venables and Thompson the judge, Mr Justice Morland said, It is not for me to pass judgement on their upbringing, but I suspect that exposure to violent video films may in part be an explanation. It was reported that John Venables' father was a fan of horror films and he had rented Child's Play 3 less than a month before his son and his accomplice went on to kill a two-year-old. After the killing the boys were found in their local video shop and the father of one hired more than 400 in two years. An MP who taught in the area tonight called for a government investigation. Well 15 years ago when I was working with children with special needs in this very area of Liverpool where these tragic events took place there was an element of innocence about children, it's as though the Innocence that children had has been entirely lost. Fifteen years later, the difference, I think, is that children are constantly exposed to this diet of violence which is drip-fed into our living rooms. The tabloid suggested there were similarities between the violence in Child's Play 3 and the attack on James Bolger. These claims were spurious at best. However, it did not stop the perception that the film series was somehow linked, as everyone wanted an answer for why it happened. The film's protagonist was then mentioned in the trial of Suzanne Kappa's murder when she was forced to listen to a dance track that features a brief clip of the film. Also, one of the defendants, Bernadette McNeely, referred to herself as Chucky. This alleged link spurred MPs to campaign against what they saw as an influencing factor behind the criminal's actions, with some proposals reaching the Home Secretary to prosecute individuals who possess videos of gratuitous violence, simulated or otherwise. Some rental chains removed the child's play titles from their shelves, Sky Television removed it from their schedule, and guidance was issued to parents to ensure they did not allow their children access to unsuitable videos. Shortly before the outcome of Suzanne Kappa's trial, Professor Michael Fitzgerald a child and adolescent psychologist based in Ireland, was interviewed by a journalist for the Dublin Herald regarding the link between violent films and violent behaviour. Describing children who have been raised in a violent household, he said, I believe there is a vulnerable group of children who are already very much into violence and who come from very violent backgrounds who are attracted to the video violence. It provides the last factor which pushes them into doing something dreadful. In this country, the videos are left lying at home, so the kids are left watching every video that's available. Through his solicitor, John Venables' father rejected the claim that his son had seen Child's Play 3, and a senior detective who was tasked with investigating the backgrounds of Robert Thompson and John Venables came forward, reportedly saying, I don't know where the judge got that idea from. I couldn't believe it when I heard him. We went through something like 200 titles rented by the Venables family. There were some you or I wouldn't want to see, but nothing. No scene or plot or dialogue where you could put your finger on the freeze button and say that influenced a boy to go out and commit murder. The Review's editor of Empire magazine, Mark Salisbury, told reporters that blaming violent films was a knee-jerk reaction, as no other reasons for the attacks could be found. There was no conclusive scientific evidence that backed up the claim that there was a direct link between violence on screen and in real life. Tom Holland, writer and director of the first film in the Child's Play franchise, was interviewed on BBC Radio 4. He was adamant there was no link between the violence in movies and violence in real life. Quote, I can see it giving adolescents nightmares, but I can't imagine why anybody would let an adolescent see a film that scary. He went on to say, I did my first film that would be considered a horror film in 1980. And here it is, 1993 going on 94. In the last 14 years I have never heard a word of this. And now all of a sudden in the last six months, I'm hearing about violence on TV, on video cassettes and in movie games. And it seems to me to be something that's more politically current at this moment than it has anything to do with horror films per se or individually. Detectives working Suzanne Kappa's case could find no evidence the group who tortured her had access to a VHS player at the address, with one officer stressing that, There is no suggestion at all that they sat around watching horror films. Detective Constable David Osborne, who was also involved with the investigation, said, I don't believe a video can turn someone evil. The capacity is there anyway. But it is possible that exposure to this type of thing sanitises them to horrific acts. Bernadette McNeely, who it was alleged took on the persona of Chucky, even testified that she had not seen the Child's Play films. The articles reporting on the links between the Child's Play film series and the crimes committed to Suzanne Kappa and James Bolger were numerous. The public were already reeling from the outcome of James Bolger's murder trial, which both traumatised and fascinated a nation in equal measure. The public were desperate to understand what would drive the culprits to carry out such horrific acts on another person. It was not only the video nasties, as the media referred to them, but also the economic situation in Manchester, or Moston in particular, that were reported as another reason for the crimes against Suzanne. While there were spots of substantial redevelopment, many people were struggling financially. Drugs and alcohol were prevalent, and violence was common. A handful of opinion pieces even pointed to the underclass being the problem. There was also an apparent rise in gang culture or gang-related retribution, with a great deal of speculation that these gangs were female-led, often citing Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely being the ringleaders during Suzanne Capper's abduction and torture. So far, there has not been an explanation for why Glyn Powell, Jean Powell, Bernadette McNeely, Jeffrey Lee, Clifford Pook, and Anthony Dudson took the action they did. This remains something only they know. So where are we now? Almost a year after the trial in November 1994, Jeffrey Lee, who had pleaded guilty to a charge of false imprisonment, was successful in his appeal to have his sentence reduced. Lee, who was found not guilty of murder and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, was sentenced to 12 years, however saw his minimum term reduced by three years. He was released on licence in 1998. Clifford Pook, who admitted to a charge of false imprisonment and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, was released on licence in 2001. In 2003, following what was described by Lord Wolfe, the then Lord Chief Justice, as significant progress made during detention, Anthony Dudson's minimum term was reduced by two years. A year later in 2004, Dudson's counsel, Tim Owen QC, argued his client's reduction was not substantial enough. Owen argued that Dudson's legal team had not been offered the opportunity to make a verbal submission to the Lord Chief Justice when he set the minimum term and alleged his client's human rights had been violated there were allegations that the prison system and the Lord chief justice were not doing enough to protect Dudson's welfare as he was a juvenile at the time of the crime. While the appeal failed at the High Court, Dudson was able to argue his case to the Court of Appeal in what was described as a test case regarding the way in which deterrence tariffs were set. But it was argued that Dudson had waived his right to an oral hearing. And while Dudson's welfare had been recognised, it needed to be balanced against the need of deterrence and the risk to the public, not to mention punishment for the severity of the crimes he committed. Dudson was moved to an open prison in 2009. In 2010, Jean Gillespie, formerly Powell, had been told when sentenced that she could apply for parole at the end of 2017. However, she too appealed to the High Court to have her minimum sentence reduced. Jean Gillespie agreed that she was involved in Suzanne Kappa's abduction and murder, but told the judge that she was in the car when Suzanne was coated in petrol and the fluid set alight. Gillespie's counsel pointed to what he described as his client's exceptional progress during her period of incarceration. Mr Justice David Lloyd-Jones presiding, reviewed the case but requested to see further prison reports as he would need more time to pore over the detail. Along with Jean Gillespie formerly Powell, Bernadette McNeely appealed to have her minimum sentence reduced, also on the grounds that she too was what her counsel labelled a model prisoner. Court documents state that she had a troubled background and was an unmarried mother who had become involved with drug-taking and petty crimes. Jean Gillespie and Bernadette McNeely were both granted leave to appeal their sentences to the Court of Appeal in 2011. McNeely's defence team successfully argued against the length of her sentence at the Court of Appeal, with her minimum term being reduced by 12 months. Some of the mitigating factors listed by Mr Justice Irwin being the defendant's youth at the time of the offence and her own highly disadvantaged and damaged childhood and upbringing. Jean Gillespie's sentence was also cut at the High Court after she had shown good behaviour, reportedly stopped a jailbreak and based on information provided to the court, she had genuine remorse for what she did. A sentence was reduced by two years. Both McNeely and Gillespie were eligible for day release at the end of 2012 after serving 19 years. In her own words, McNeely wrote it was impossible for her to have achieved more than she had done while in prison. The court was told she had remorse for her actions, was a positive influence on inmates and continued a relationship with her family. While Suzanne Kappa's mother Elizabeth Dunbar had remained out of the spotlight choosing not to speak to the media regarding her daughter's murder, she contacted MP for Blackley and Broughton Graham Stringer, who in turn wrote to the then Justice Secretary Kenneth Clark, highlighting the horrific nature of Suzanne's murder. She pleaded that Suzanne's killers never be released. At the time, Anthony Dudson was expecting a parole hearing. MP Graham Stringer said, I think that it is appalling, given the horrific nature of the murder carried out, that these people are being considered for parole. I think that in this case, life should mean life. I do recall the murder at the time. It was horrific and is up there among the very worst murders in Greater Manchester. Mrs Dunbar is appalled by the idea that one day she might meet the murderers of her daughter on the streets. I believe these people should never go free. Elizabeth Dunbar was subsequently contacted by the Ministry of Justice and told that Anthony Dudson would only be on day release and would not be able to visit a large part of Greater Manchester. Still, there was a possibility he might bump into Suzanne's surviving family members as they lived in areas of Manchester Dudson was free to visit. John O'Connor, Suzanne's eldest brother, told the Manchester Evening News. Suzanne's killers shouldn't be allowed anywhere near us or anywhere that we are living. They shouldn't be allowed in Manchester at all. As far as I'm concerned, they deserve to serve the full length of their time because that's what they were given whether or not they have good behaviour. There are a lot more people who have done a lot less and died in prison. With Dudson's hearing taking place, Elizabeth Dunbar was offered the opportunity to write a victim personal statement to the parole board. This was also forwarded to the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron. The statement explained how the crime affected her and continues to affect her. The statement read in part, I am the mother of the murdered Suzanne Kappa and I am under the impression that Mr. Dudson received a sentence of being detained under Her Majesty's pleasure. I would like to put it on record that I am totally against this person or any other persons involved in this horrific murder, being ever able to have the freedom or liberty afforded to other people. Myself and family have suffered and have to endure extreme pain, which we all find difficult to apprehend on each day of our lives and we also feel that this person showed my daughter no mercy and contributed fully in the torturing and burning of Suzanne. I feel I cannot find it in my heart to show this person any mercy. During June 2013, Elizabeth Dunbar was contacted and told that Anthony Dudson's release had been granted as the parole board had agreed he was no longer a risk to the public. Elizabeth Dunbar told the reporter for the Manchester Evening News. I am utterly devastated by the news. I have been fighting and fighting and fighting, but it has got me nowhere. He will be on a life licence, but I hope that regular checks are made. We do not even know what he looks like. The only picture of him is when he was 16. 16. Bernadette McNeely was released on licence at the end of December 2014. While Freedom of Information requests have been issued, there appears to be no public record of the release of either Jean Gillespie or her former husband, Glyn Powell. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. The information on this episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
0: In